This week's episode is brought to you by Third Eye Comics, your friendly neighborhood comic shop with seven locations in the Maryland, D.C., and Virginia area. They're your one-stop shop for all things comics, graphic novels, toys, games, records, movies, and more. Not local, but still looking for an awesome place to meet all your comic needs? They've got an amazing website, shop.thirdeyecomics.com, where you can browse thousands of items, Pre-order your new comics and have it sent right to your doorstep for a flat $5 shipping rate. They were such a blessing during lockdown. Mm -hmm. Just as our Usagi Yojimbo passions were brewing, we were able to reach out to them, order all the books that they had on their shelves, all the saga collections from Dark Horse Comics, and get them to our door lickety split. And here's a little hot tip. They have out-of-print comics at cover price. Yes. I hate to tell you that, because we want them all for ourselves. You'll be shocked by what you can find on the shelves at Third Eye Comics. And they have a massive grand opening event happening on January 27th, 2024. That's this year, everyone. That's this month from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. It's their new Third Eye music and video location cradled between Third Eye Comics and Third Eye Games in Annapolis on Chinquapin Road. It's over 8,000 square feet of records, movies, books, and other fun stuff. They are doing a grand opening sale. Save 20% off everything in stores at all three third eyes. Excluding trading card games and new releases from 1227 to 127. First 25 in line will get a free third eye music and video record tote, keychain, and t-shirt. I want all of those things. We do not have a third eye comics near us. But we do make the long trek out to Annapolis on a routine basis because the shop is so grand and gorgeous. And it's an honor to have Third Eye Comics sponsoring Comic Book Couples Counseling because, yes, they are one of the best comic book shops in the country. Google any best comic book shop list and you will find them. And it's in no small part because they have the kindest, most helpful, coolest staff on the planet. They will fill your comics niche. But again, even if you're not within driving distance, it's worth checking out their website. Find a link in the show notes and start browsing and shopping today. Third Eye is here to help you read comics, play games, collect toys, spin records, and never grow up. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. And I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the Four Color Realm. In this episode, we really know how to murder a romantic mood. It may very well be our mutant power. We have Scott Summers and Emma Frost from Grant Morrison's New X-Men sitting really far apart on our counseling couch. And we'll be applying How to Be the Love You Seek, Break Cycles, Find Peace, and Heal Your Relationships by Dr. Nicole LaPera to their relationship woes. One of the more pleasant reminders that I got 
from rereading Grant Morrison's new X-Men was that comics can be bummers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and they can be bummers and still quite enjoyable. And I had that feeling also when we were watching Ang Lee's Hulk this past Sunday at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. That movie is not Fun. And I think that's why that film had such a poor reaction when it came out in 2003 on the heels of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, which, you know, had tragedy and dealt with Peter Parker's shame, but was generally a good time at the movies. But Angley's Hulk is pretty miserable and slow all the way throughout. But that does not mean it's not a great time at the movies. It's just a different kind of great time at the movies. I had not seen Ang Lee's Hulk before. I was just kind of like suffering under the delusion that I had. I do this thing where like a movie comes up often enough that <laughs> yeah. inside my little like lizard brain, I'm like, I've seen that movie. And of course been I have. So many other Hulks, mm -hmm. right? You know, we've had Edward Norton's The Incredible Hulk after this one. Of course, Mark Ruffalo's Incredible Hulk. Uh, and then we've had Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby, mm -hmm. plus the various animated versions. So, like, you know, I could see why. I've consumed a lot of Hulk right, in right, my time. Right, right, right. And so I just assumed, like, I I've seen it all. But, like, the closer we were getting to the screening, and, and you kept, like, pop quizzing me, like, do you remember the dogs? Do you remember the biting of the thing? And I was like... No. <laughs> the biting of the thing. Nick Nolte taking a chomp of that electrical cord. Yeah, no, I, I had nothing. And so, like, when we were doing our introduction with Philip Kennedy Johnson, like, I had no idea, really, what I was walking into. All I knew was that this film was perhaps bad. Yeah, I like, mean... Like, perhaps not a good movie. Its reputation is that it's not successful, but back in 2003, I really enjoyed it, and I feel like it only gets better with age, and in 2024, it's practically an art film, and I think if it came mm -hmm. out today, people would really yeah. celebrate it. Yeah, yeah, that was what I was going to say. I do feel like it's a comic book movie before its time. Yeah. Where, like, we had seen the X-Men movies. Yep. And we had recently seen Spider-Man, as you had mentioned. Yeah, Blade and, you know, Men in Black and things like that. But when you compare... Ang Lee's Hulk to The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton, it makes Edward Norton's Hulk look so trite and look so, like, about nothing, where Ang Lee was really grappling with and exploring the tremendous metaphor that the Hulk is. And I, I feel like... Philip Kennedy Johnson did such a great job for setting up. The Hulk can mean a struggle with addiction. The Hulk can mean a struggle with rage and toxicity and all of these things. And it's really up to the creator to set up that metaphor so the reader can truly engage with what the Hulk does mean. Yeah, yeah. And the relationship between Eric Bana's Bruce Banner and Nick Nolte's banner is um, thick with tension mm -hmm. and anxiety and anger and sadness. And the screenplay really meets the metaphor at its level. It's a very smart, well-written screenplay. It's not an action film. Mm -hmm. You know, there's yeah. very little 
fun, smashy, smashy going on in Hulk. It's a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a body horror. Yeah. It's science fiction. Yeah. It feels like Hamlet at the end when Nolte and Banna are on the stage together, squaring off and screaming and 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 really like attacking each other for what they've done to to each other. And when we finally get this psychedelic CGI fest at the end, that's just Freud stuff, mm -hmm, man. Mm -hmm. That's just Jungian delight. I really loved the use of dreams and dreaming as a way to represent repressed memories. Because repressed memories in movies can often be like really corny. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not the case here. And I also really liked how Philip Kennedy Johnson pointed out that this movie embraces the form that is the comic book. Mm -hmm. You know, the sequentialing that is happening, the paneling that's happening in this movie is really odd. Yeah, the first time I saw it, it was like jarring. Yeah. Just, you know what I associate with it? I, I, I associate like 60s. Mod, yeah, like a Brian De Palma film. Or or, yeah, exactly, absolutely. And yes, it is jarring because it is so unusual. But as Philip Kennedy Johnson said in his intro, you know, so often when we call a comic book cinematic, that is a great compliment. And here is a film that is embracing the sequential. And yeah, we gotta we gotta give it its flowers as well. I really was swept up into that movie and it was truly like against the odds because when we do these introductions and we're hosting film club, I get this like kind of buzzy yeah, host yeah. energy where I feel like hyper aware of like, is everyone having a good time? <laughs> yeah, Does yeah. everyone like same, me? Am same. I a true monster? <laughs> you know, so Are you like, the Hulk? Yeah, so sometimes I, I have a hard time really watching the film, but this film stole me. It stole my imagination, and, and I, like, I just loved it. I but really loved it. I'm not going to lie. As I was watching it and really taking in all its sadness, I was very aware of how quiet the mm -hmm. audience was. And when there was, like, a laugh break, when, you know, the screenplay does insert a joke, nobody would would respond to it. And so as we were walking out of the theater, I was like, did Lisa like it? Did the audience like it? Does Philip Kennedy Johnson still like this movie? Philip Kennedy Johnson also brought his young son to the film. And, you know... Only we, child there. Exactly. We often get kids in these screenings at the Alamo Draft House, but this time there was one child and he belonged to Philip Kennedy Johnson. And I was like, that is a long movie of sadness is this kid gonna like it and yeah no he absolutely loved it and everybody had a great time with hulk we had a wonderful time after the film hanging out with eric from four color fantasies and the lovely Lori, talking comics talking hulk and um philip kennedy johnson did sign some stuff yeah and and eric sold a bunch of comics for four color fantasies as well and it was nice to see that long line in the lobby you know, working its way to Philip Kennedy Johnson. And Philip Kennedy Johnson was so kind. One, to drive two hours away from his home with his child to do this introduction for Hulk. And two, to then hang out and chat with everybody and sign so many comics. Like, that is a good dude. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a better way to celebrate our doing the film club comic book series for a full year yeah. than to have a creator there, to have an amazing film there. Yeah. Like it gets me so excited for the year to come of comic book 
cinema. We started with Howard the Duck and a virtual intro from Chip Zdarsky, and we've ended with Hulk uh, and Philip Kennedy Johnson. Our next screening is going to be February 25th, and it's going to be Robert Townsend's The Meteor Man, which technically did not start as a comic book, but did become a Marvel comic and had several issues in which Marvel superheroes teamed up with Meteor Man. There's a Spider-Man issue, there's a New Warriors issue, uh, and Lisa and Brad have ordered a lot of them uh, <laughs> since we made the announcement. Very excited uh, for that screening. Another movie I have not seen. No, no, no. It, you know, it, like... I would highly encourage people to watch Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle. It's a great spoof film. And Meteor Man is also a bit of a spoof of the superhero genre post-1989's Batman. And it has an incredible cast. And it's, you know, a joke-a-minute kind of movie. We've already started a... Knock it on doors, email-wise, slip it into people's DMs to try to get some virtual intros and whatnot. Yep, yep. I have emailed the agent of Robert Townsend. <laughs> How exciting. Uh, that would be amazing. I would not hold your breath. But if you are a comic creator listening to this episode right now, and you love the Meteor Man, and you want to do a virtual intro, hit up our email, yes. podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you hate Meteor Man, why not? <laughs> yeah, like Chip Zdarsky hated Howard the Duck, and he's spent his entire virtual intro saying, why are you here watching this terrible movie? Right, right. So if you want to see that hypothetical virtual intro and you want to see Brad and Lisa's actual intro, tickets are already on sale. Link is in the show notes. If you are a patron, you do get in for free, but yeah. you have to reach out to Lisa and Brad and or Brad directly to make that happen. If you call the Alamo Drafthouse Winchester and insist upon your free ticket, they will not give it to you. Yep. Kevin's already reached out to us and I've got him a ticket. Yeah. So yeah, it's Kevin and us right now in that theater. Uh, February 25th, come join us. Yeah. Now, I'm sure all our Schema fans listening feel hijacked by this Hulk talk. You have a 15-second skip button. Tap, 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 tap. <laughs> so we'll just get on into it right now. Scott and Emma are in our waiting room waiting for their counseling session. As Lisa said in her intro, they are sitting very far apart. They are not snugglers quite yet in their relationship, but we will get to those episodes eventually. This is a four-part series, as all our counseling sessions are, although there's a couple bonus episodes to this particular counseling session. For this week's episode, we're focusing on the final third of Grant Morrison's new X-Men run, and if you want to hear where we're going after that, you gotta wait for the outro of this episode. That's a tease. Ooh, yeah, Brad's been working very hard, really reaching out to our listeners, reaching out to the experts to find out what we should be covering because there has been way more Scott and Emma than we thought. In my case, I actually kind of stopped reading X-Men after the Astonishing run or the first Astonishing run. And then I didn't pick back up until the Krakoan era. And, you know, there's like, a good decade of Scott and Emma content that I completely missed. And I'm so excited to dive into that particular era of their romance because yes, there's a lot of it. 
So, Scott Summers, codenamed Cyclops, first appeared in the X-Men number one, published by Marvel Comics in September 1963. He's the creation of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Emma Frost, codenamed The White Queen, first appeared in the Uncanny X-Men number 129, published by Marvel Comics in January 1980. And she's the creation of Chris Claremont and John Byrne. We first discussed their complicated coupling five years ago during our Scott Summers and Jean Grey counseling sessions, episode four in that session series actually covering Grant Morrison's middle chunk of their new X-Men series. And last month, we returned to Scott and Emma's psychic affair as experienced in those comics for our fifth anniversary episode. A link to that conversation can be found in the show notes of this episode that you're listening to. For those conversations, we were using the love languages, and we're not going to go over the content of those episodes again. So if you're curious about them, please hit up those links. All you really need to know is that Scott Summers and Emma Frost were indeed having a psychic affair, and when Jean Grey invaded that psychic tryst, she went off on Emma, nearly reducing her inner life to a physical puddle. And Scott Summers responded by running away to that strip club that we find him at the start of the third and final chunk of Grant Morrison's new X-Men, which we're going to talk about in a few moments. We are going to pick that issue apart. <laughs> I love the first panel. Me too. Of that issue, that high heel. Uh, so yes, what issues are we actually covering today? We're focusing on Scott and Emma's relationship as it fully solidified during the events of new X-Men issues 142 through 154, published by Marvel Comics between August 2003 and May 2004. The last issue is approaching its 20th anniversary. Unbelievable. They're all written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Chris Bocciolo, Phil Jimenez, and Mark Silvestri. They're inked by Tim Townsend, Al Vey, Aaron Soud, Andy Lanning, Simon Colby, Bat, Joe Weems, Billy Tan, and Eric Basaldua. The colorists are Chris Chuckry, Steve Furchow, John Starr, Matt Myla, Beth Sotella, and Brian Bucolato. The letterers are Chris Alapo, and Russ Wooten. Man, that's a lot of names. But you did it. <laughs> I did. One try, maybe. <laughs> uh, here's the basic plot synopsis taken right off the back of the new X-Men Ultimate Collection Volume 3, which is what we're reading from. 16 million mutants dead, and that was just the beginning. In one bold stroke, writer Grant Morrison propelled the X-Men into the 21st century, masterminding a challenging new direction for Marvel's mutant heroes that began with the destruction of Genosha and never let up. Regarded as the most innovative thinker of the current comic book renaissance, Morrison proceeded to turn the mutant hero genre on its ear. Gone were the gaudy spandex costumes replaced by slick black leather and an attitude to match. I would also say that the, the <laughs> adjective gaudy stands. <laughs> it stands. I think it's still pretty gaudy. <laughs> uh, not mentioned in that synopsis, that's also pretty important to this conversation. John Sublime's U-Men, a group of humans who seek to improve themselves by stealing mutant bits, pieces, and body parts, and augmenting them onto themselves. Also, Esme, one of the Stepford Cuckoos, has turned against her sisters and the rest of the X-Men, having psychically influenced an assassination attempt against Emma Frost, Frost only lives because Jean Grey put her shattered diamond body back together, Humpty Dumpty style, 
and Jean Grey's connection to the Phoenix Force has intensified once again, causing concern for all those around her. Humpty Dumpty did not have the Phoenix Force. Though I would read, I would read that I children's book. I would read that book. comic, yeah. <laughs> but before we get into this final chapter in Morrison's new X-Men, we need to discuss the love expert we'll be using to help us better understand Scott and Emma's relationship. After all, we are not experts we ourselves. Are not. We do not know what we're talking about. We're only experts in loving each other. So Lisa, who's our romantic guide this week? Our relationship expert for these crazy kids is Dr. Nicole LaPera, a.k.a. the Holistic Psychologist, using her book How to Be the Love You Seek, Break Cycles, Find Peace, and Heal Your Relationships. She's a psychologist with a B.A. in clinical psychology from Cornell University and has her doctorate from the New School for Social Research, and she is a New York Times bestselling author of How to Do the Work and How to Meet Yourself. I selected this book because I feel like Scott and Emma's relationship started in this really murky, dishonest place. <laughs> Scott was cheating on his wife. Emma caught feelings while essentially trying to like emotionally sabotage Jean Grey. Yeah, that's that's the trick to the relationship. Is yeah. that Emma was antagonistic. She was there to mess things up, but in the process fell in love with Scott Summers. Right, right. So there's just a lot of self-hatred embroiled in their love affair. Not to say that they ultimately can't find satisfaction and harmony in their relationship, but I think they have a lot of work to do. So why not like just start the work with themselves? We're going to use How to Be the Love You Seek over these four sessions with Scott. And look, I did it right here. You put Scott and Jean. I put Scott and Jean. My fingers my fingers uh, are just doing the walking. Yeah, I think that's your heart. Your heart's doing the walking. <laughs> I think you're Team Scott and Jean, not Team Scott and Emma. Who knows? At, over the end of these four sessions, yeah. maybe I'll I'll discover that they're they're the the OTP. That's the big question, right? Like, should it be Scott and Gene? And when we got to the end of those counseling sessions five years ago, we were not necessarily like yay together forever for them, right? Like, yeah, no, the true couple is Scott and Emma, and I'm not necessarily sure yet, but I am rooting for them. But weirdly. to me, like. No matter who it is, ultimately, that ends up together, Scott and Jean, Scott and Emma, Scott and Jean and Wolverine, like, how, however it shakes out, it has to be Scott and Scott, Emma and Emma, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They have mm -hmm. to feel, mm -hmm. they have to heal their relationships with themselves, and um, so we're going to use this book over four episodes so i haven't read the whole book i'm just a quarter of the way through i'm through i've read about two ish yeah you, well you haven't read all of scott and emma's relationship exactly we're, <laughs> we're learning and growing together that's, that's right. what this is about so dr lapera in this book is coming from a super personal place when she was going through school and starting to practice psychology she found herself cycling through these unfulfilling relationships and it was a source of frustration for her her aha moment was when she discovered the answer to relationship satisfaction was not healing her relationship with her partners, but rather healing her relationship with herself. She has used her personal journey as well as her background in psychology to create steps for people to heal their relationship with their authentic selves. So they have a sense of safety and self-confidence to bring their true selves to their relationships. 
for Scott and Emma to heal their relationship with their authentic selves, they first have to recognize their authentic selves. According to Dr. LaPera, our authentic selves are ourselves we were always meant to be in our essence or soul. And she defines the soul as the thing that makes you you independent of your condition's needs, the existence of which is supported, according to Dr. LaPera, by quantum mechanics. Okay. There is a footnote. (laughs) I didn't click it. I'm just going to kind of like accept the premise at this point. Okay. The opposite of our authentic self is our conditioned self, the self we learn to present as a result of our attachment to our parent figures. Brad, do you remember attachment theory, like, at all? I, uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah, was so one of my favorite, like, uh, theories that we used with a couple, but I can't remember what the couple was. Yeah, no, me neither. That's the joy of podcasting for five years. But the idea is, like, our relationship with our parents or whoever raises us at that like very tender age influences how we relate to other people and how we relate to ourselves as we age. So our conditioned self is like our attachment plus any other pressures that make us feel any way unsafe. As we function, our brain logs information for what makes us feel good, neutral, and bad. And that information conditions us and conditioning creates habits and those habits drive our subconscious. With our subconscious at the wheel, we can drive further and further away from our authentic selves and further away from the satisfaction of being who we really are. We're just starting Scott and Emma on this journey. We're not going to get them all the way to their authentic self in one session. We're just going to get them started with the steps laid out in chapter two, exploring your embodied self in order to help them discern what is their authentic self versus their conditioned selves. The human person, according to Dr. LaPera, has three categories of needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual, which exist in a hierarchy. Dr. LaPera was, of course, inspired by Dr. Abraham Maslow in his 1943 study about human motivation. What she guides the reader to do is like, when you have a need, when you feel a sense of urgency, you have to like stop and go like, Is that what my body actually needs? Is that what my spirit actually needs? Or is it the result of some kind of conditioning? Uh, Okay, I I actually like that. Yeah, I think it's important for you to ask yourself, do I actually want this? Or is the pressure coming from somewhere else or someone else? By reconnecting with their authentic selves, Dr. LaPera says they can reach the following goals. One, learn to listen to their bodies and meet their physical needs. Two, They can learn to become consciously aware of their conditioned habitual thoughts, emotions, and reactions so they can make new decisions to better serve their authentic selves. Three, finally, they can locate and learn to trust their intuition, reconnect with their soul, and manifest their unique essence or energy in the world. Big promises. I like it though. I like having a tool. Yes. This is usable. I'm excited to apply it to Scott and Emma. But before we do that, Lisa, we need to do some referrals sponsored by Omnibus. Omnibus is a modern digital comic book store and reader app carrying your favorite single issues, volumes, and omnibuses all day and date. Just like your local comic book store, you pay per book, but 
digital. Their focus is on building an excellent customer shopping and reading experience and using novel discovery features to help fans find their next new favorite book. They feature top tier content and already have many of the top publishers in comics today. In the spirit of helping people find their next new favorite book, we have our referrals segment. The idea is to give you, the counselees, further reading on the themes of the episode. Think of it as us sending you to specialists to further your healing journey through comic books. Okay, Brad, I went first last time, so it is your turn to go first. So, obviously, we've been extremely enthusiastic about all things Energon Universe. Yeah. You know, we've been doing a lot of coverage on comic book couples counseling of Transformers, Duke, and Cobra Commander. Uh, but I think we need to take some serious time to also highlight... G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Larry Hama is back on the book. He's continuing the series with 301. Uh, you know, the issue 300 was with IDW, but now he's with Skybound. And now that he's with Skybound, he's got artist Chris Mooneyham. I love them as a combination. Mm -hmm. And recently we did a guest spot on the Talking Joe podcast discussing G.I. Joe 303. And I know you're thinking like, Brad, what does G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, have anything to do with Scott and Emma and what we're going to talk about in this episode? And I don't know, Lisa, if you remember this. During How can I forget? I know what okay. you're going to say. Okay, good. <laughs> so in issue 303, we get a little more time with Snake Eyes and Scarlet. They're the couple of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. But this is not the Snake Eyes that Scarlet knew. Mm -hmm. This is actually a clone of Snake Eyes. And slight spoilers for issue 303 of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, but Snake Eyes is talking now. Yeah. Not much, a word here and there, but because he's a clone, he doesn't have the physical damage that made the previous Snake Eyes mute. And so now we're dealing with a talking Snake Eyes, and it's a little odd for longtime fans. But we were speculating on Talking Joe that it might also be a little odd for Scarlet and a little odd for the rest of the Joes. And when we first see Scarlet and Snake Eyes in issue 303, they're sleeping in the same bed in their lovely little cabin, but their backs are against each other. And we were speculating that maybe not everything is so hunky-dory in their relationship. Of course, Lisa and I often speak you know, sleep with our backs against <laughs> each other. You're not 24 hours spooning. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I like to sleep on my stomach, actually, which means I have a very intimate relationship with our mattress. No, you like to sleep like a roly-poly. You're do. like curled up into a ball <laughs> yep. at the foot of the bed. You, you want nothing to do with pillows or me. Yeah, that's true. But that's, it, that's, that's personal, but okay. I, I, I had fun exploring the idea that things may be a little rocky with this new clone Snake Eyes. And I think just the very idea of a clone Snake Eyes is very Chris Claremont, is very uncanny X-Men. But, like, my thing with that is people keep shushing him, which I think is, like, so rude. They're like, Snake Eyes doesn't talk. And he was like, Snake Eyes would have talked. Yeah. Snake Eyes has a lot to say. Yeah, be quiet, new Snake Eyes. If you want to be like old Snake Eyes, you need to zip it. Oh, rude. Uh, so, yeah, I like, we don't get a lot in these three issues with that couple, but I'm hoping, you know, Larry Hama 
really gives us some time with those two in future issues. Yeah, if they want me to continue reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I love Chris Mooneyham's art. It's uh, awesome. I think it's fantastic. There are some panels with blue ninjas that look like they're straight out of Mike Mignola's Hellboy. If you're not reading G.I. Joe or Real American Hero because you have not read the previous 300 issues, don't worry about it. Just jump on board with 301 and have a good time. Enter with a childlike sense of wonder. Yeah. All right. So that's my referral, Lisa. What do you have? I wanted to go with the theme of like becoming estranged from your authentic self. Like our conditioned self is a result of a lot of external pressures and it is like a defense mechanism. But you like when you live in constant fear or danger or, or in, in a lack of safety, like you begin to lose sight of like what is my conditioned self and what is my true authentic self? So that made me turn to The Unlikely Story of Felix and Macabre by Hassan Atmani Elhao and Juni Ba. Yeah, Juni Ba, our artist of the year. Yeah, we had Juni Ba on when Mobilis and Felix and Macabre were coming out kind of like at the same time. Best October. Yeah, Juni Ba October is That's what we right. called it. That's right. And we spent a lot of the time talking about Mobilis because he had happened to write that and draw it. Yeah. But Felix and Macabre also great and yeah, also great. a lot of yeah. life lessons to be pulled from this book. Hassan Atmani El Hau is clearly like an extremely thoughtful individual and I think what Felix and McKeber has to say about like trauma estranging you from your authentic hopes and dreams is like really really important. This story takes place in a fantasy world driven by fear and is occupied by monsters and demons. And Felix is like this little tiny demon who's being picked on at demon school. So he goes to the most notable and scariest monster, Macabre. And Macabre shows the ropes to Felix of how to be like really scary. So we get a little bit of Macabre's background and it all stems from this like early trauma and the bigger and bigger he became in the kind of like monster wrestling circuit, the lonelier he actually becomes. I wish that we had Hassan on so that we could also talk to him about what this book means to him. But like for me, it left me in this really thoughtful but sad sort of place. Yeah, I think it is a very complicated story, and it is one that requires um, consideration and probably a few rereads as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's a great idea, Lisa. Like, yeah. I'd love to get Hassan on the show one of these days uh, to talk about this, but also to talk about how, like, he is the letterer uh, in the industry. Like, he is doing so much right now. Yeah. Both of those referrals are available on Omnibus, and you don't need the app or an iPad. If you have a browser, you have access to Omnibus. Just hit the link in the show notes of this episode and start browsing and shopping today. And that brings us to the end of our... Referrals. Okay, Lisa, we are officially bringing Emma Frost and Scott Summers out of their waiting room and into counseling session. Let's dig into the final third of Grant Morrison's new X-Men. This first issue, Lisa, illustrated by Chris Bocciolo, is 
my favorite issue of the entire trade paperback. There is a lot to decipher in this issue. And I also think that this issue, along with the rest of the story, is going to make this a very Scott-focused counseling session, which I, as a feminist, feel guilty about. But that's just how this book shook out for me. I mean, that's what happens when Scott Summers is around, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like, me, 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 pay attention to me. Oh my goodness, he is a needs vacuum. Uh, And if this issue is my favorite issue of this particular trade paperback, then the first panel of this first issue might be my favorite panel of the entire Grant Morrison run. Just because when you do the page turn or when you open the cover in this case to this paperback and you see this black heel just land on a stage mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, I recognize that heel. That's the black queen. That's Jean Grey. And then you start to realize that we are at a strip club for mutants and it's so pathetic. Yeah, and then we get to see. Speaking of pathetic, Ex- yeah, that's we get exactly to see who I'm speaking Scott's about. Scott's exchange with this stripper, but to me, these are some of the most complicated pages because we find out later that this stripper is psychic. So you go like, well, is this actually the experience that Scott wanted? Yeah, right. Or is it an invasion? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I think you know the 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 ideas around strip clubs as being illusions is mm-hmm. that's not those are not new ideas. Right. I think Grant Morrison is having a conversation that was certainly happening twenty years ago around strip club culture, and he's just doing it in an X Men way, which is why we love Grant Morrison. The first thing that the stripper says when she's looking like the Black Queen is like, why did you choose me? Uh, Do I remind you of someone who doesn't look like this anymore? Would you like me to appear as anyone else? Wondering how this stripper's psychic powers work. Like, I get the impression that Scott's thoughts are not particularly clear. Like, I don't think that he knows exactly what he wants to see. Right, to go back to your previous question, like... Is this an invasion of privacy or Mm -hmm. not? You know, she's implying that he did choose this image. Now, is that an image that he is projecting and she is looking in? Like, is there a moment where he goes up to the register and says, like, I want my wildest fantasy? And we do know that this is his wildest fantasy because in our previous conversation, we discussed how he tells Emma that he resents Jean Grey during this period when she was Black Queen, walking around, strutting and showing her stuff to everyone, but in the bedroom, she wouldn't behave this way. And he was kind of lusting after this Black Queen version of Jean Grey. And here he is in this strip club that will give him his every desire. And it's it, this is it. He's finally getting his Black Queen Jean Grey strutting her stuff. But it's also not it, you know, because right. you know, because it's not true. It's not honest. And it's a reflection of his shame. And and he can't get past his own shame. Well, I also think because of what he went through with Emma, his relationship with reality is now so complicated. His yep. relationship with honesty 
is so screwed up because, yep. well, the first thing that he says is actually, I am stunning myself with how unarousing I'm finding you right now. And then he immediately goes into like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that about you exactly. And he's being like so sweet Con about it. Sweet, but also condescending, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> he's being pretty gross too. Like he's being very dismissive. Well, I think people are telling him what he wants all of the time. And I think that he's in this place where he like wants to just define what he wants for himself, but he doesn't really know what that is anymore. Yeah. Because he's been his conditioned self for so long. Well, he's, he's like, spiraling. Yeah. He's yeah. spiraling. And, you know, when I was reading this volume, I did have to remind myself of the conversation that we had in our fifth anniversary episode where... I discovered a lot more empathy towards both Emma Frost and Scott Summers. And I found myself falling back into me being just like, well, dismissive myself of going like, Scott, you're being such a pathetic garbage person, mm -hmm. right? And it, it took me sitting with this issue for a bit to re-engage with my empathy for Scott Summers coming out of this catastrophic confrontation with Jean Grey and Emma Frost in the previous issue. Where his feelings were not resolved and he was feeling like so ashamed and so unclear. He couldn't look at them. He couldn't look at himself. He had to get on Wolverine's bike and skedaddle. Right, right. But like, it's hard not to look at what Scott is saying to this sex worker. Is this what he actually wants to say to Emma? Because he says like, it's your job to create a fantasy. You're not my girlfriend. <laughs> and we're really just sharing here a weird financial transaction. And I think about like, he went he allowed Emma into his mind under the guise of being a therapist. Right, right. And right. which that was never Emma's intention at all. Her intention was to mess with Jean Grey. Yeah, to break them up. Her intention was to break them up in a, 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 out of a sense of vengeance right. and in the process fall in love. And Scott his intention was to heal in some way and mm -hmm. to reconnect with the love that he had for Jean Grey. But in the process, both Emma and Scott fell in love with each other. Right, right. I also or think... Or they think that they did. I don't know. Like, it's... it's, it's like, it's I think... Be, I, I think, like, there are many times where we saw Scott in the last session throw away the pretense that this is therapy. Like, he knew he wasn't doing therapy. Like, and I don't think he ever intended... Like, I don't think he ever fooled himself into thinking... Like, that was literally a way to reconnect with his wife. I think he was literally thinking of it as, like, this is a safe space where I can do wherever I, whatever I want because I'm not responsible for it because it's not actually reality. And then he says to this stripper, I can't fool myself that there is anything more to this exchange. And, like, to me, I go, like... He's saying that to what happened, saying that just to happened. Emma. Yeah. He's going, like, I can't fool myself into thinking that we had some kind of relationship because... We didn't. Yeah. It was yeah, a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. He's on the verge of being alone, alone. Like, he, he's in on the verge of not reconnecting with Emma Frost, certainly, and, and also not reconnecting with Jean Grey. Like, while he's sitting in this bar, he is, I mean, he is alone. He is alone in a way that he has not been in years. Right. So then we have... 
the uh, stripper open her top and say, like, you really know how to ruin a romantic mood. And he says, I guess so. I think it might be my mutant power. Yeah, he's defining himself as the person who ruins romantic moods. So to me, there are like two slightly nuanced ways to read this scene. You could read this scene as he's just hurt the stripper's feelings. You know, she's trying to do her job. And she's trying to show up for him because he is sitting right in front of the stage. I mean, he came here. He engaged in the contract. And now he is belittling her and condescending to her. But you could also read this as this is the exact experience that Scott wanted. Scott wanted a fantasy place where he could tell Emma his feelings and leave her feeling as humiliated as he feels in which case, he owes this woman a tip, right? Yes, yes, if yes. this is yes. actually what he wanted. And I think later when we see the exchange with Sebastian Shaw, Sebastian Shaw says, like, these women are, are psychic and especially trained to give you exactly what you want. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, so you got your money's worth. Right. I think ultimately the appeal of Scott Summers and Emma Frost as a couple, hashtag schema, is that it's two broken people mm -hmm. seeking to heal themselves through the other, right? And I think that is a very relatable feeling. I think we've all been in places where we feel broken, shattered, grotesque, and unlovable, and in need of mending, and you root for them because you root for yourself. Like, you can be healed. If they can survive this, you can survive mm. anything. Yeah, but I feel like Dr. LaPera would go like, if you're not showing this other person your authentic self, your true self, they can never actually love you. Like yeah. you have to you have to do the work to find your authentic self so you have someone who feels safe and confident to bring into a relationship. Yeah. And not to dismiss Dr. LaPera there, Lisa, but that is like kind of a cliche point, right? Right. right. And it's not necessarily like a point I I personally believe in. I don't think that you have to have yourself all figured out to be in a healthy relationship. And I think that we do get into partnerships to learn about ourselves and to get a, a different perspective on the world. And I am curious as we go through Scott and Emma's relationship over the course of four episodes, will we find a point where Scott and Emma are okay with themselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I don't want to get into spoilers about their end game, uh, but it is an X-Men comic. You right, know? <laughs> like, right. Happiness is, uh, it's, it's hard for, for an X-Men. Yeah, I think they need, like right now, Scott sees Emma as a symptom of his failure to be a good X-Man. And until he changes that narrative, this relationship is not going to feel good to him. So after he unburdens himself to the sex worker, he gets up and walks away from the stage and sits in a booth with his back to her. And now he's staring at a wall. All he's got are his dark thoughts 
and a glass of sparkling wine. And of course, somebody notices this and it's Sabretooth. Yeah. And the first thing that Sabretooth says is like, what am I looking at? When did you start drinking, ex-boy? And like, to me, I think it must be extra hard for someone who is so publicly outward facing. He's been on television. He's famous. It's so hard to make a life change because everyone then feels like they have the right to comment on it. And like, I'm a little bit that way too. I don't like people pointing out when I'm doing something unlike myself because it makes me feel... You're in a box. Yeah, yeah, like I'm in a box, but also that this thing they've never seen before is somehow not also me. You know what I mean? Or I'm disappointing them or being like, oh, she's so surprising because she's doing this other thing. We present ourselves in so many different ways to so many different people. And it is a false assumption to think that you see and know a person's totality. Right, right. And, and I think like, especially when you're like Scott and you feel like maybe I've never been myself, like you don't want to have to discuss the person that you are. Yeah, and so it's bad enough that Sabretooth is mocking him, right? But he's not the last person to mock him in this issue. I feel like the reader is probably mocking him. Sabretooth comes along and is mocking him. Then Sebastian Shaw, and then ultimately the last person on the planet he wants to see, Logan, Wolverine. Yeah, they're making fun of him because he ordered sparkling wine, which like is like a, oh, and, and like a, like an effeminate drink, like as if there can be such thing as an effeminate drink, like drink what you want. You know, not only is he trying to be this like hard drinking guy, but he like, he's not even doing it right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is not how you do a pity party. Follow Wolverine. He'll show you the ways of a pity party. Maybe his authentic self drink sparkling wine. Nobody knows. Yeah. And like Wolverine's idea of how to like pull him out of his funk is just so cliche, too. It's so Wolverine. Right, right. But also, is he actually trying to pull him out of his funk? Or is he trying to pull him into a mission with Phantom X? Yeah, I, I like. I know that Wolverine does have a mission with Phantom X, but is he normally on any day going to go to Cyclops to do that mission? You know, like, I feel like he sees an opportunity here. Yes, right? yes. To, like, you know... Uh, man up Scott who in Wolverine's estimation has everything that Wolverine wants. I think that this conversation between Logan and Cyclops does have layers of honesty, radical honesty and, and um, true good intentions in it. But I think because of the presence of Phantom X, like that proves that, Wolverine is there to manipulate Scott and like and it makes perfect sense why he would get Scott because Wolverine Logan is on his own personal journey of self-discovery that he doesn't want the other X-Men to comment on. Yeah, so he, he knows that Scott's in a very shameful position and won't rat him out. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like he like nobody knows where Cyclops is. Yeah, I think so, the complicated thing about Wolverine is is trying to measure how vindictive is he being in this moment also. Right. 
sure this could be a coincidence. Like Wolverine is here at the Hellfire Club because Phantom X is at the Hellfire Club. And here is also just in happenstance Cyclops. I don't believe it. Yeah, I just no. don't believe it. Yeah. But I think that the perspective that Logan gives Scott in this conversation is actually really valuable. And I think that we can see Cyclops kind of noodle on some of what what um, Logan says throughout the rest of this comic. I don't think it necessarily clarifies anything for him, but I, like it plants the seeds. When Scott sees Logan, he assumes that Professor X sent Logan to beg him to come back to the X-Men, which is actually what I think Scott wants. I think Scott wants that affirmation that he's like needed. Yeah, yeah. Right? Acts of service, it's his love language. Yeah, and X-Men is his entire identity and he doesn't want to have to choose it. He, I think he wants to feel obligated to do it, right? So that he has this kind of emotional out of going like, well, I didn't want this anyway. You know, so if I'm doing it right, it's not my fault, you know. Um, but then Logan gives him a gut punch and he's like, no, they actually think you're a murderer. Emma was shot and you're the prime <laughs> suspect, right? So like that is a kick to the emotional nards right there. And I think that that is what gets Scott to stay in the conversation because he doesn't like that. You know, he needs to know more about that. And so Wolverine says... What we're going to do is this. We're going to have a drink off. And if you win, you get to lose your mind and your dignity. And if I win, we do what I want to do. Right? Like, which is like another sign that that's what Wolverine is there for. He's got a healing factor, too. Like, Scott knows he's going to lose. It's a stacked deck. (laughs) It's a stacked deck. And And he does. He does lose. But not before revealing a bunch of personal stuff. Like, directly comparing Emma and Jean. And what he says about Emma is with Emma, there was like no pressure and no expectations and that she just kind of accepted him as he was. Where with Jeannie, they got together so young. And so he ends up always just feeling like that teenage boy he was when they got together. And I think that it can be like that in relationships like where no matter what, you guys just click back into those old roles that you've always played because that's where your habits are. That's your conditioned self. Your subconscious is kind of driving you to play the same role. And I think it's made extra severe when you're also chained, not to (laughs) change such a bad word here, chained not only just to your relationship, your partner, but to your job. Right, right? to your job. And also someone with the Phoenix Force. Yeah. And who is psychic. What argument could he possibly win? She's all powerful. She's all knowing. If you have an inferiority complex, uh, (laughs) that pairing is going to be real challenging throughout the course of your romance. And also, like... If he decides to change himself and be a different person, it might make Jean Grey mad. And we don't like her when she's angry. We've also talked about in previous podcasts, relationships never work if you are determined to keep your partner the person they were when you first got together. You know, humans evolve. Change is necessary. 
your spouse is not going to always be the 20-something that you married. And if you are a controlling person and you don't accept change in yourself and in others, it's not going to work out. Wolverine, though, challenges what Scott says and goes like, Gene would love you to change, right? Gene sees you ha always being so pent up and in your shell. And... She has been dying for you to let loose a little bit. Wolverine is not psychic. Like, Logan doesn't know everything, but like... He knows the buttons, though. Yeah, like, and, and we... He does, he does. We have seen Scott talk himself into a narrative that is not necessarily true, right? He's using the, like, iceberg tip of his conscious mind to hyper-focus on what is wrong. And that, that kind of like needling in your own brain or like um, spiraling in your own brain doesn't always lead you to the actual authentic truth. Yeah, rarely does it. Right. Rarely does it. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when you're in agony, all you're doing is picking at that scab, right? Like you're just reinforcing your own pain. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't think Wolverine is necessarily the person he needs right now. Mm -hmm. You know, when Wolverine throws it in his face that you don't realize how lucky you are you have these beautiful women throwing themselves at you the best women the best says. women and you're moping around here you have the audacity to feel sorry for yourself and like that's just another needle that he doesn't need right right and and logan goes like i would love to have what you have a steady life i would love to have that and you're throwing it away which i think supports scott's thesis of like Emma is evidence that I am a bad person and I am an unworthy person. And I think Wolverine is actually trying to help, but he is giving some of the most unhelpful advice to a person who's in a crisis. And that advice is like, hey, pull your Woo. together, which no one no one who is in the depths of despair ever wants to hear. Right. And so what ultimately ends up happening is that Wolverine just provides a distraction. So Scott does fail to outdrink Wolverine. Duh. And the next issue is Phantom X, Logan, and Cyclops storming the world. And real quick, what is the world? It's this research facility directed by John Sublime, where time is fluid, which allows the scientists within it all the time that they need to develop living weapons. And this is where the Weapon Plus program developed, which is where Weapon X came from. And we learned that Weapon X is actually Weapon 10. And there are a whole bunch of individuals like Phantom X who are a part of this program. And we actually learned later on after this series that the Stepford Cuckoos were part of the Weapon Plus program. And I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm just going to ignore it for right now. John Sublime, in his mission to eradicate the mutant question is creating the Weapon Plus program as the ultimate extinction agenda. And there is a new Weapon 15 that if it gets out, it's going to be real bad for mutant kind. And Phantom X wants to destroy Weapon 15. And in the process, also give Wolverine some knowledge about his life, who he was before 
he became Weapon 10. Yeah, he's been having some memories arise of this woman, and he feels like if he figures out who is in these memories, he'll learn more about himself. And we know what those memories were because we read the Origin miniseries, but that's a podcast for another date. And are those memories even real? Is that a truth or is that another fiction? And does that actually matter? Hmm. I find it really poignant that Scott and Logan are on these complementary journeys where Scott is trying to find his authentic self independent of his narrative. He knows his life story and he doesn't feel like his life story is fulfilling him or is truly him. He's trying to break away or actually restart. Where Wolverine thinks like, oh, if I find these points on my timeline, I will then understand my authentic self better. At first, Scott feels really humiliated that he's even there. Like he says out loud, like, I feel stupid because I've been pressured into this. And I've said, like, I don't want to be doing X-Men stuff anymore. And Logan's like, this isn't X-Men stuff. We're just two mercenaries blowing off a little steam, you know, whatever. Um, but like quickly as like the danger arises and... Scott is kind of getting into the mission, the more he defaults to his X-Men training, and he actually finds a lot of comfort there. They actually run into these two guys. They don't know what they're doing there. And Wolverine is like, or Phantom X, I can't remember which one, is like, we should just kill these guys, right? They're in here. If they're in here, they've got to be bad. And Scott goes like, no way! As an X-Man, I can't let you kill these people who are c clearly civilians. And they are civilians. They're journalists. And, like, I feel like he experiences that as a little bit of triumph. And I think he starts going like, ah, it's not really all bad being an X-Man with X-Man ideals. Ultimately, the arc of this story is Scott Summers going from the Hellfire Club, ready to flush everything down the toilet, to discovering that he actually is good at being an X-Man, and he contributes something as an X-Man, and he wants to be an X-Man. Although there are some bumps along the road, like there's some a pretty good like performance joke in this uh, storyline where he can't get it up. He can't get the optic blasts firing and there's some good ribbing uh, towards Scott there. But he survives the ribbing. He survives the shaming that Phantom X and Logan throw his way. So at the end of this arc, he's ready to stand tall in front of Magneto. But I think he also realizes that being an X-Man can't be all that he is. And there's a really beautiful exchange between Scott and Phantom X where Scott is standing up for Logan in a way that he's not ready to stand up for himself. And because, so it starts with Scott telling Phantom X, like, I don't trust you. I feel like you're another person who is manipulating Wolverine because he has this desperation to find, to find himself. And Logan is a person who has been taken advantage of and been traumatized enough. And so I, I want to read this directly from the book. And Scott says, it took a long time for him 
and a lot of hard work to reclaim his dignity after what they did to him. So he's not a pawn or a weapon. He's not their weapon 10. He's not Professor Xavier's weapon for peace. And he's not your weapon, Phantom X. And I feel like Scott is also kind of talking about himself of like, I don't want to be a tool. I don't want to be a tool for Professor Xavier. I want to be, I want to have dignity. I want to be my own person. And Phantom X then goes like, you think I don't relate to that? I'm also, I'm also a tool of Weapon X. I also came from this program. And he gives his whole backstory about being Charlie Cluster 7 and all of this stuff. And Scott goes, oh, I thought you were French. <laughs> and Phantom X goes like, no, I just like the accent. We all find our dignity where we can. Mine is Phantom X. And you're laughing, but I think that that's so beautiful because like Phantom X is saying like, you get to build your own narrative. If you don't know who you are, you get to create who you are. That's true. That's I think absolutely it's an true. interesting counter to Dr. Nicola Perra saying like, underneath all of your conditioning, all your needs and wants and desires, there is this thing, this person that your soul wants to be, where I feel like Phantom X is saying, you have the power to make yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the reason I'm laughing is because he's just such an unreliable character. Right, right. Even this moment, you can't really trust it. Right. But you couldn't trust what Logan was saying. Yeah, that's true. That's to, true. To you, Scott at the bar. Right, and Scott can't, you can't trust what Scott is saying, and you can't trust what you're saying to yourself. You're, you know, we're all unreliable narrators. Right. And as this arc wraps up, we discover that even the baddies are going through existential crisis. Uh, Weapon 15 explodes out of the world and flies up to this space station. Our heroes follow after him. And while they're up there, Phantom X does uh, fulfill his promise of giving Logan the Weapon 10, the Weapon Plus file. And as he is processing all of that information, Steve Rogers, he's Weapon 1. What? Weapon 15 arrives. And Weapon 15 is like, uh, John Sublime says that I have to kill all the mutants uh, because life is precious. But what's the purpose of life? And... Wolverine's response to Weapon 15 is great, but it's like, it is painful, right? See, I just found out who I am and what I am. And well, let's just say some of us were born to kill and raised to kill. And that's the only damn thing we're any good for. Everything else is just lies we tell ourselves. You're asking me about the purpose of life, you freaking genocidal machine. It's like this kaboom and he hits the detonator on the station and that's the end of this arc so i do feel like scott has had some healing in this unwanted mission that was thrust upon him he has at least discovered that he still enjoys being an x-man but i don't like where it leaves wolverine at all right and this is not yet wolverine's counseling session and i am like my temptation to just go into the weeds with the rest of his story is like so strong. All right, we got to get into Planet X. Yeah. All right. Let, okay, so let's do it. Now, the, the thing about the final third of Grant Morrison's new X-Men is there actually is not a lot of Scott and Emma 
from this point forward. We just get little pieces, but they are crucial pieces. We haven't even gotten to Emma at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> and we're going to do that right now. But I just want to warn all you new X-Men fans that we're going to be skipping over a lot. Yes, Zorn is Magneto. There, we've said it. We can't really get into more than that. Cyclops and Phantom X escape on a shuttle. Logan is trapped on the station, and the station turns out to be Asteroid M. Professor X senses the catastrophe and psychically reaches out to his X-Men. And Scott immediately apologizes. He says, I'm sorry I ran out on the X-Men like I did, sir. I'll explain later. Then upon the page turn, we see Emma getting the news and she's with Hank, whom she likes to call Henry because that's his proper name and she's a proper lady. And she's still getting tests from after she was shattered into a billion pieces. And they immediately go like, let's go get Scott. And then Jean is busting in on Professor X and is like, sorry, I'm leaving. I'm going to space because I'm going to get Logan. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Jean goes for Logan and Emma goes for Scott. And this is a really good place to just directly contrast Emma and Jean because Emma, as she's leaving says, like, I have a bad feeling about this. I have this sense of, like, horrible closure impending upon me. And Jean goes, like, don't worry about me, Professor X. Whatever happens, it's going to be for the best. So we see, like, Emma is this tremendously insecure person even when she's choosing to do something heroic she's like i don't know i don't know guys yeah but again like jean's god like, right? like she's approaching godhood but you think about like your proximity to your authentic self relates directly to how secure you feel yeah 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 emma so is an extremely insecure person so she feels alienated from herself Jean is an, a tremendously strong person. So, of course, she has this sense of security going into vulnerable places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gods can do that. Later, over the Pacific, Emma senses Scott. And she says, I know Scott. He gives off the most bizarre and aloof psychic radiation. And it makes me think of, like, why? Like, <laughs> I never go, like, hey... That guy seems so bizarre and aloof. That's sexy to me. But then I think about Emma's relationship with her dad. Mm. And her dad putting his daughters through hoops to prove their worthiness to him. And he he kept this sense of separateness because his family was also his business. So Scott's aloofness is really just an extension of her daddy issues? Yeah, I think mm. it's an attachment issue. Mm. She has, like, she's attracted to guys who present themselves as better than her and unavailable. Yeah, well, we also, like, she also gets to this idea that there's a traitor within the ring. She can sense that there's a traitor. Henry is not so sure about a traitor. As he's questioning it, though, his X-plane explodes, right? And they go down. Most of the Planet X storyline, when Magneto is taking over Manhattan and threatening to turn the world upside down, Henry and Emma are just hanging out on the wreckage of the plane out of the battle. Do you know my most bizarre revelation, most surprising revelation out of Emma's storyline is that she wears contact lenses. 
That surprises you? Yeah, because I figure, like, if you have diamond powers... <laughs> that it would sharpen you... your sight? I'm sure that, that you when she... diamond yeah, contacts I on. think when she diamonds up, she doesn't need the contacts. So do they pop out? Uh, they get sealed her clothes, over. Her, her clothes turn into diamonds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sure the contacts become diamonds and they become even more clear. Okay. I know I said I wasn't going to talk about Wolverine anymore, but I have like one more thing. And it it relates to Jean and how Jean would feel about Dr. Nicole LaPera. Jean and Wolverine are on Asteroid M and they are plummeting towards the sun. And Jean gets the sense that they're not going to make it. They're going to die. And they get one of the like X-Men signature heart to heart conversations. And Jean goes like, I know what you've been going through with these flashbacks, how you've been trying to remember who you were. And then Logan goes like, well, I discovered that all all of that is a lie. And I'm just this weapon that is supposed to genocide my own people. Like I am literal trash. And Jean goes like, it doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter that you were a product of the Weapon Plus program because I know what you've gone through to be the good man that you are now, Logan. And that's who you actually are. Like the person that you are now is a good person. So why does it matter what your past was? It's like a good God. She can absolve. <laughs> yeah. But also like she's saying the pressures that you went through were necessary so that you could become a good person where Dr. LaPera says like you are who you are independent of all of the pressures that make your life. Your soul has its unique signature and you have to forget everything else to get who to who you really are. So I think that um, I think that Jean wouldn't take Dr. LaPera very seriously. And it makes me wonder like what is actually the more empowering idea? Like the idea that like you've gone through your pressures so that you can become so that you can become who you are or you have to forget your pressures to remember who you are i think it's a, a personal choice yes a personal <laughs> choice or whatever serves you in the moment but they do go into the sun after logan has mercy killed jean popping her claws in her belly which we discover Oh, how Christ-like is that? But later we discover it's the fulfillment of a prophecy of the Phoenix, which goes like, well, do we have any autonomy anyway? Who even knows? But that question speaks to all religions, including the religion around the Phoenix. And, and you know, that's part of the human condition. Right. Below them, Manhattan has become an apocalypse. And it is crazy that X-Men comics can recover from an event such as Planet X, but comics got a comics. But I do really love how terrifying this particular Magneto is. You know, he's addicted to kick and everywhere he goes, his followers, especially his students, keep reminding him that he is no Zorn. They actually miss Zorn. What a clever guy Magneto was, this elaborate scheme to take over the X-Men from within but in doing that, 
Like he created such a perfect character in Zorn, people miss him. So every opportunity, people are going like, you know, you're no Zorn, and it's driving him mad. Uh, and it's creating opportunity for resistance cells. And so Beak and the Stepford Cuckoos, they have formed their like terrorist organization to reclaim Manhattan. My favorite part of the Magneto storyline is that I think he has to admit to himself that he liked being Zorn. Like, Zorn was a highly conditioned self. It was something he presented to hide his actual true intentions. But even that little piece of his conditioned self also contained a part of him. Yeah, yeah. How do you interpret that later on he starts hearing Zorn's voice? You know, he's, he, he, he goes to Professor X and says, like, is this you? Are you manipulating him? But we learn that, no, Professor X cannot telepathically escape that little tube he's in. So he is hearing voices. Is that the kick? Is Magneto actually going crazy? Is I that think, sublime? I think it's a form of dissociation. Where, like, Zorn becomes this piece of himself that acts like a Jiminy Cricket. And going, like, clearly you actually do know the right thing to do because you thought of Zorn. And Zorn is an idealist. And Zorn is a peacenik. So what you're doing is wrong and you know it's wrong. Right. Yeah. And, and that tortures him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Cyclops and Phantom X, they do find their way into Manhattan. And yeah. they find the resistance cell led by the Stepford Cuckoos. And Beak catches them up, and they're like, Professor X is naked in a bottle and paralyzed. We, like, Dr. McCoy and Miss Frost, they were blown up in a plane, and Mr. Logan and Miss Grey Summers, they're in the sun. There is no X-Men anymore. And Scott refuses to believe that Hank and Emma are dead, that Gene and Logan are dead. They're out there. He knows it. He can feel it. But he also says, like, even if they're not there, there are still X-Men. Because I'm looking at you, and you're X-Men, and I'm looking at myself, and I'm an X-Man, and I'm always going to be and he an X-Man. could not have said that if he had not gone through the world with Phantom X and Wolverine. Yes, yes. And so he ends up telling this, like, hodgepodge little group of mutants, like, I hope you're paying attention, class, because this is going to be on the test. Issue 150 is the Big Planet X conclusion, and it does open with surprise. Logan and Jean are not in the sun. The Phoenix has reawoken fully thanks to Logan popping his claws inside Jean's belly and killing her. And she has reformed the Asteroid M station into like a Phoenix spaceship to bring them home. First pit stop, though, picking up Emma and Hank on their little wreckage uh, raft. Which, of course, Emma immediately resents and goes like, <laughs> look, there's Jean showing off again. X-Men, led by Cyclops, stage their assault on Magneto. Phantom X frees Professor X. And Cyclops finally gets over his performance issues and unloads his optic blasts right into Magneto's face, shattering his helmet, which has been protecting him from Professor X's potential attacks, or any psychic attacks, really. What ultimately allows Cyclops to blow his optical load is that <laughs> he goes like... He goes like, Zorn was fulfilling me. Zorn was making me feel hopeful. And that was a lie. Like Emma coming into my brain and telling me that she was going to do therapy. Like that was a lie. 
And he says, like, I kept running from the negativity and the darkness that En Sabanur was manipulating inside me. And so I was repressing all of this rage, but I'm not going to repress my rage anymore. I'm going to let it loose on people like you. So I think this is like almost like a mirror to the stripper scene at the beginning of the book. I'm tired of people showing me what I want to see to get something out of me. I'm not going to allow people to do that to me anymore. And the humiliation that Magneto must be feeling having been taken down by Cyclops. (laughs) It turns into deadly rage in its own right, and he kills Esme. Esme, who he's been dragging along, kind of promising that they could be an item together. He finally tells her, like, look, it's never going to happen. I was never going to do anything with you. You're a child. And he takes her earrings and puts those earrings right through her head, killing yet another Stepford Cuckoo. And her last words are with Emma, actually. And and Emma expresses pride and respect for what Esme has done. And this is one of those pages in this series that I've had to reread a couple times. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what is Emma feeling here? Like, what is she doing here? Are these words meant to stab? Or are these words meant to soothe as Esme leaves the mortal realm? Because they don't. That's certainly not the expression that Esme leaves us with. Yeah, I think that Emma is trying to soothe herself kind Mm, of independently mm, 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 of mm. Esme. And she does say, like, you turned into such a wonderful femme fatale in the end. And I wonder if, like, Esme is the one who ultimately followed in Emma's footsteps the most Mm. um, because of Emma's relationship with Sebastian Shaw. But I do think as a mentor or as a parent figure, you can be proud of someone independent of what they've done. Like, Esme... You know, she made some bad choices. She ultimately made an independent person of herself. Yeah, she made a choice. Like, she found herself. It was awful, but she found herself. Uh, Now, the next page, we have the reunion of Emma Frost and Scott Summers. And Scott says to Emma, like, I finally made a decision about us, what what we're going to be or not going to be. Can we go back to something he says before that first? So, like, Emma, upon seeing him, is like, okay, you finally show your face. And he says, I'm an introvert. I'm going to run away to, to think my thoughts. And I think that's him saying, like, you have to allow me to be who I am. Yeah, I, and I, it's something similar to what I've said to you in the past. Right. Where, Lisa, I am a brooder. You got to give me space to brood sometimes. And I've also discovered that maybe that's not healthy either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I do think that there is something too. I've never been allowed to take my time. Well, like, to me, like, the way I read it is, like, Emma, you have to let me be me. Uh, You know, Lisa, you have to let me be me. I am going to brood. And the truth is you cannot change any person but yourself. So what I've decided in my own experience is that Lisa does not like it when I go off Mm -hmm. and brood alone. And I want to meet you 
where you stand and maybe I should reevaluate my brooding. Maybe my brooding is not necessarily an essential function of myself. And right. maybe Scott needs to discover that his brooding is not an essential function of himself. But I think about uh, Dr. Lopera and going like, I need to, some, like sometimes I need to prioritize my needs. Yeah. Like, I need space. Maybe if this conversation were to continue, he would realize, okay, I can tell people. Mm -hmm. I don't have to just disappear in a mm -hmm. puff of smoke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, like, I do think, like, LaPera would stand up for him and go, like, he gets to prioritize his needs sometimes. Yeah, yeah, If that's yeah, an emotional yeah. need to, to just stop and think. Yeah, yeah. So then we get to Scott saying, I have made a decision about us and we do see what that decision is in the next arc of here comes tomorrow and the decision he makes is that he's going to walk away from emma i think that decision is changed by oh, the by circumstances yes 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 mm, that's that's possible that's so do you think in this moment the decision that he has made is he's he could say right now the next sentence if he wasn't interrupted that we are uh, together forever i think his decision is i'm going to stay in x-men I'm going to stay with Gene. I think that you think he that's his thinks, decision right now. Yeah, I think that he thinks that those two things are inextricable, which yeah. I think we're ultimately going to discover are not true. But I think that the Boy Scout in him is like it's all or nothing. Yeah, either I'm an X Man and I'm a teacher and I'm with my wife, or. I'm not an X-Man, and I'm with Emma. Lisa, I need to, like, jump to the end of this book, then. Okay, so, hold on. Hold, hold on, no, no, no. Oh, no, okay, no, 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 no. Go. I, I, like, go. So you think, in this moment, Scott has learned that he is better as an X-Man, mm -hmm. which is the all the life that he has known, really, since he was, you know, a teenager. Mm -hmm. And if that's true then Gene must be my true partner. Right. Okay. Right. So then when Gene dies, he cannot be with Emma because he's going to remain faithful to that memory, when, to that person he wants to be. When Gene dies, he becomes hopeless. Okay. Right. And hopeless is the thing that breaks the universe. So then it takes God just rewriting that thought. Right. And that's what happens at the end of this book is God, Jean Grey, the Phoenix saying, no, 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 don't, that, that is a faulty logic. I'm going to just allow you to accept Emma, live. Right. Okay. So at the very end of this story, he is still robbed of his autonomy. Yes. 100% <sighs> yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to get into that, but I want to like change the focus of the camera right now to Emma in the reunion scene. So Emma says to Scott, she, she essentially says like, I'm not happy with you. I'm not happy with you that you left. And she says, they shot me. And then Jean of all people brought me back in this new age nightmare of forgiveness. And now this, and she's saying, I'm already overwhelmed. I am stretched to my emotional limit and I have emotional needs. And Scott says, put a pin in you, put a pin in your needs, uh -huh. because I'm ramping up 
to dump you. That's pretty selfish in that moment. I know that Scott feels this urgency. I know that this journey of self-discovery has been revolutionary to him. And he knows that if he doesn't, like, he goes like, if I don't take care of this right now, I'm going to wimp out, right? Because he wimped out so many times before when he wanted to break up with Emma. So he's choosing to do it now. And um, I just... I just think that that, like, he does not see the person in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Well, he can't make any decisions right now because they still got to take care of Magneto. Oh, and, yeah, and they right. do. And they do take care of Magneto. Uh, Wolverine cuts his head off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gene tricks uh, Magneto in, into removing the Zorn helmet, which he put on to protect himself from psychic attacks. And Logan just takes care of him. And But, like, Magneto's final gift to the X-Men is he causes a stroke in Gene and Gene dies in Scott's arms this time. So she gets to die in Logan's arms once and then in Scott's arms a, a second time. Yeah, like a, Gene's last words to Scott are, I haven't seen you so alive for a long time, Scott. My best friend. Have to go now. Live, Scott. And then the Phoenix says, Live. live yeah and yeah. she says all i ever did was die on you yeah you know what i did not realize that that was the phoenix until just now right that, th that those those word balloons are the phoenix and the last word she hears are gene no gene yeah <sighs> yeah and when she says i haven't seen you so alive for a long time scott does she mean now that you have this re-energized energy to be part of the X-Men and that conflict is kind of like resolved? Or is she thinking like, when you were with Emma, you were more alive than ever? Like to me, it uh, seems like, I, I don't know, it could go both like, ways. I, I, you know, I think to answer those questions, we have to get to the last scene of this entire book. But to get to the last scene of this entire book, we have to explain how freaking weird Here Comes Tomorrow is the final arc of Grant Morrison's new storyline, uh, a new X-Men storyline, which is set how many years in the future? 150. 150 years in the future. And this one is illustrated by, you know, 90s image comics legend Mark Silvestri. And because it's set so far ahead in the future, there is no Scott and Emma, really. Logan, of course, is still around. We learned that Ernst is Cassandra Nova. Yeah. Although that gets retconned later. Uh, we see Eva as this new AI. Like, she has now a humanoid form. Who else is still hanging around? Martha is around, still a brain in a jar. Oh, and the Stepford Cuckoos are still uh, rocking and rolling. And Beast, Henry, kind of but he is now fully John Sublime. We learned that Sublime, by the way, is this sentient bacteria that's as old as time itself, practically, and has been working its entire existence to rid itself of mutantdom. And Kick was Sublime. Kick was that bacteria. Did I get, do I get all that I think right? You, I think you've got it. Like, to me, the most important thing to take away is 100 years in the future... Things are terrible. <laughs> Things are not good. Yeah, yeah. You like, thought Planet X was an apocalypse? Welcome to an apocalypse. Humanity and all of its iterations are are null. 
And Lisa, I know this was your first time reading the finale of Grant Morrison's new X-Men. And I'd like to know, like, when you get to this moment, what were you thinking? I was thinking this is a tremendous distraction. <laughs> I mean, because I Because you're in Emma Scott mode. Yeah, exactly. And you said to me, like, do I need to read any of this? I was like, <laughs> no, you got to read all of this. And there is some essential Emma and Scott stuff coming up real quick. Yeah, and I, like I had trouble because of my distraction of trying to extract like stuff about Scott and Emma. I had a real hard time following some of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so. But I don't think that that's fair to the book. But like, what did you think of when you got to the end of issue 151 and we flash back 150 years earlier and we're at the grave site of Jean Grey with Scott and Emma? I was relieved that they were involved. But like the first time I see this scene, I of course have no idea what's happening. Like it's hard to, for me to put myself back in that place since I've finished this book. Yeah. What what we get here with this first time at the grave is Scott saying like, I, you know, I quit. I'm done. And uh, yeah, we're not going to be a thing. But what Emma is overtly proposing is not that they become a romantic couple now that his wife is dead. What she's proposing is, why don't you and I restart the school? Like, why don't you and I rekindle Professor X's vision? And she says, uh, but you and I together, think of what marvelous teachers we could be to a new generation of gifted, bloody brats. We could inspire greatness. So I think like when Esme died in her arms, and she felt that love that she had for Esme. I think that that reminded her of her love of being a mentor and a teacher. And that moment gave her hope. But don't you think there's also an unsaid thing here where she's implying also that they can be together? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. for sure. And but even like when, just like I said, like before, where it's like in his mind, being an X-Man means being with Jean. Like, he's he's not just saying, like, no, Emma, we can't be a couple. He's saying, no, Emma, I can't be an X-Man with you. Yeah, yeah. And so 150 years in the future, the Phoenix egg appears and the Phoenix emerges from it. A version of Jean Grey emerges from it. And the story is, like, who can convince the Phoenix egg to be on their side? You know, sublime, dark beast wants the Phoenix Force to help him conquer the planet. And of course, the what we can call the X-Men of this period want the Phoenix on their side. Yeah. And ultimately, they convince the Phoenix to acknowledge the beauty of life on Earth. Mm, yeah, part of the function of the Phoenix is to disinfect. And I think that, like, that is the function that... Gene slash the Phoenix, but mostly the Phoenix is serving in this moment. Right. And the way it's described to her in the white hot room where all the Phoenix hosts reside inside the Macron crystal is that she has amputated an infected future, a bad future. But in amputating that infected future, she now needs to regrow a future. She needs to regrow the timeline. And as the Quentin Quire Phoenix, yes, Quentin Quire becomes a Phoenix, everyone, uh, explains it, you need to replace the part that you have cut away. Which serves as kind of an aha moment. And she goes like, okay, so what was dying? What was dying that killed the future? 
And it was Scott's hope. So we get those immortal words, live Scott, which the Phoenix echoes, live. For the last two pages of this story, we return to the last two pages of issue 151, back at the gravesite. And the first page of these final two pages is identical to that page from that issue, except in the final panel, when Emma says, don't you want to inherit the earth? Previously, there was no response. And now we have Scott saying in one tiny little bubble, I dot, dot, dot. And then you turn the page, final page, they're embraced kissing. And he says, yes. So what do you think that Gene changed? Well, for me, you have to look at the one difference between the two pages, because those panels represent a specific set of time, like the pacing is set. So it's the same pacing, the same time in both pages. The only difference is the eye. So the what I think Jean changed was that she encouraged Scott to say yes to Emma. Mm-hmm. With specificity, like say yes to Emma specifically? Yes, because she knows that Scott does indeed love Emma, as we discussed during our fifth anniversary episode, right? So she's saying, like, Scott does love Emma. This is a good thing. And this good thing, like, him walking away from the X-Men is going to cause this apocalypse, uh, this butterfly effect mm -hmm. that will result in Sublime Beast taking over the world. Right, right. I think that that is one interpretation of it. Yeah, it's my interpretation, Lisa. And upon first reading it, that's also how I interpreted it. But we have to remember that Emma is also psychic. And Emma saw Scott's love for Jean in Scott. And, right, and right, she, right, she talked right. about how pure it was. Right, right, right. And so I'm wondering if Jean, when she says live... Oh, are what, you saying it? she's saying it to Emma? No, I'm saying... Like, going back to what Wolverine said, and Logan said, and Logan told Scott, like, Jean would have loved to have you let loose. She was always trying to break you out of that shell. Even Emma said, like, he's got this really aloof, psychic radiation coming off of him. I'm wondering if by saying live, I'm wondering if she's saying, like, let loose a little. Like, worry less how you are appearing to others and just kind of go after what your heart wants. That's compelling. And in that moment, it just so happened to be Emma and starting the X-Men up again. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that interpretation. Especially when you have in mind the thing that died was Scott's hope because Scott was clinging to these old ideals of like to be an X-Man I have to be faithful to my wife. Mm, so And so like to have hope, you have to have, you go to back to that Brene Brown thing of like hope is not an emotion, hope is a cognitive process. So in order to have hope, you have to see a way out of your situation. So by living, he goes like, okay, I'm just going to try this. Yeah, yeah. And knowing where <laughs> the relationship between Scott and Emma goes from here, where it goes doesn't negate 
the live in this moment, mm -hmm. right? So this moment is not really necessarily retconned, especially if we take your interpretation of it. Because even in this episode, if you go back, we go like, so does Scott have any autonomy at all? Right, 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 right. right. And I think by interpreting it differently then he still has the autonomy that I think his wife would want him to have. Uh, I don't know. You, I don't know. So like, well, let's, let's, un let's unpack that a little bit. So because Gene is actually saying live a little, let loose. Is that him now having autonomy? Um, well, like, I think still, it's less switches. It's less, you know what it's I mean? still a switch. It's though. still a switch, but it's, it's like he was locked up. Yeah. He had something psychically about, like, vibrationally different about him where he was holding himself back. And I think that all she did was like, hey, don't hold yourself back. Like, live your life. Some people have interpreted this moment uh, as Gene forgiving both of them. Mm. And I don't, I, like, in my reread of it this time is it's not about forgiveness at all. No. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The weird thing about Jean having the Phoenix Force and the Phoenix Force being a godlike power is that she's not infallible. Like, at, all of these people have had the Phoenix Force. All of these people have made terrible yeah. mistakes. So she's just a comic book god like Odin. Like, Odin is messing up all the time. Just because, like, it restored a future, it doesn't mean it restored an ideal future or right. the well, right future. I don't think there is, like, a utopia for the x-men right. I, I think every future for the x-men is a days of future past kind of future mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and, and that's certainly what the comics keep feeding us i i feel like for gene it's going to be like confirmation bias like clearly i did the right thing because there is a future now yeah i i don't know like i feel like the closest we've come to uh, a utopia situation for the mutants was the height of the Krakoan era, mm -hmm. but things are not meant to last. Right, you right. know, things are always changing. Uh, I, I think we brought this up on a previous episode recently, the Denzel Washington uh, quote, and he was paraphrasing somebody else, but this idea of like, you know, this too shall pass, mm -hmm. you know, you're having a bad day, this too shall pass, but you're having a good day, this too shall pass. And, you know, it's, the 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 X Men are always moving. So however they're feeling, wherever they are, it sh it too shall pass. Mm -hmm. I feel like we need to leave it there. I feel like it's time to let Scott and Emma now leave the office and kind of meditate on what we covered. And I think we need to reflect about what we've learned from Scott and Emma and from Dr. Nicole LaPera. I, I mean, we're so just starting this journey with Scott and Emma. And I feel like I um, understand their path even less after this conversation than I did after our fifth anniversary conversation. Uh, you know, I, I ended that conversation going like, I am rooting for them and I want, I want the best for them. I feel like I am the Phoenix. Live, Scott and Emma, live. I like the idea of hanging out with them for a while. Uh, where they are here, even though they have embraced and locked lips and Scott has now said yes, they have a lot more work to do. Yes. And I'm excited to further explore their beginnings and their endings. Um but I like I, I I do I prefer them to Scott and Jean as a couple? 
do I prefer Scott and Jean to Scott and Emma as a couple? That might even be the wrong question. Yeah, I feel like know? that's kind of a moot point. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Like I think it, we've we've reached this this point in this conversation where that is you know the OTP of it all is not interesting. Right, right, and I and I like go like well Scott and Emma are trying now, and I think us as counselors, but I think also us as like readers, it's our job to want the best for these yeah, two people, yeah. however it shakes out. And as far as Dr. LaPera, I'm still trying to figure that all out myself. Right, yeah. uh, you know, this idea of, you know, needing to find your authentic self before you can truly partner up with somebody else. You know, I've heard that before. And, you know, it makes sense to a degree. But I also believe what you said earlier, that you don't necessarily need to be at a nirvana state to couple up because there aren't too many people out there in a nirvana state. And if we were all waiting to reach a nirvana state, then none of us would ever couple up. Yeah, yeah. Like for me, it reminds me of um, the Bowens family systems theory where you have to learn how to process your emotions so that when you're in a family system, when someone else is overwhelmed, you can take their emotions and when you're overwhelmed, they can process their emotions and they can take your emotions. Where I feel like Dr. LaPera has kind of taken the other person out of it. Yeah, where yeah, it's like, yeah, it's interesting, yeah. To find your authentic self, you learn how to meet all of your needs. You yeah. meet your physical needs, you meet your emotional needs, like all of that stuff. But I can understand why Dr. LaPera is a compelling guide for Scott and Jean because both people are struggling. They're, yeah. they're at such a low point right now when we find them in Grant Morrison's new X-Men. And again, that's the appeal for me. Yeah. Is like, their lowness. I do think they are out of touch with what they actually want and they are both grasping. So I think that the idea of like, well, I'm just not being my authentic self right now might be a comforting thought. Like this idea of like, there is a version of me that is happy. I just have to like kind of like slough off all of these conditioned selves and then that person is there for me. I feel like trying to go like, do I want this or does my conditioned self just want this? Like to me, that is like a one-way ticket to overthink city. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And overwhelmedness. Overwhelmedness. Yeah, granted, like... I'm only two chapters into the book. <laughs> yeah, and we're basically two chapters into Scott and Emma's relationship. So there's still a lot more to mine. Yeah. yeah. About uh, from both stories, yeah. from Dr. LaPera's story and from Scott and Emma's story. So we haven't fully committed to Dr. LaPera. We haven't fully committed to Scott and Emma, and Scott and Emma haven't really fully committed to each other either. But we will live comic book couples counseling live yeah. we're just going to even though we don't know if it's the right thing we are going to just move forward because we know that there's a way out of this yeah yeah and i'm really excited about where we're moving to next uh our next episode will actually be a creator corner conversation and Friends, it is a really fine chat. Yes. Todd McFarlane is back on Comic Book Couples Counseling. This is our fourth conversation with Todd, and it is our longest conversation with Todd, and it's the closest we've gotten to have like a counseling session with Todd McFarlane. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of this chat. 
and I'm very excited to share it with you. Uh, if you don't remember our last conversation with Todd McFarlane, it happened at San Diego Comic-Con. Why not go ahead and give that a listen to? It's a much shorter chat uh, to give you an interesting uh, take on where he was a few months ago versus where he is now on the verge of celebrating the 350th issue of Spawn. I feel like the conversations that we've had with Todd McFarlane just are further evidence that he is a an individual that contains multitudes. Yeah, and he likes what we do. Yeah. Like, he likes to get on the couch and really think about things. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, uh, let it all out. Uh, so, yeah, that's next week. Uh, the week after that, we will return to Schema, and the conversation will focus around three specific issues. And I don't know if this will be considered a controversial decision, but Lisa and I have decided to skip the Astonishing X-Men era, basically because that storyline is another kind of beginning for Scott and Emma. That's when they truly kind of commit to each other away from Jean or the Phoenix's decision. And we wanted to get to like peak functionality yes. of Scott and Emma. Yes, please. So we've chosen... The Dark X-Men, The Confession, one shot from 2009, and Uncanny X-Men issues 518 and 519, also from 2009. Uh, I've read them already, and I think Lisa's going to have a lot of fun with them as well. And I think we're all going to have a lot of fun with these issues, because these past two Schema conversations have been pretty darn heavy. Yeah. And we need to see them, like... Working. We need to see them working. What does that look like? And we're going to see it here in these three issues. And after that, currently the plan is for episode three of Schema, or technically four or technically five, depending on your legacy numbering, will be Avengers versus X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> which is another massive storyline, which will be hard to contain two under two hours of conversation here at Comic Book Couples Counseling, but we're going to give it a go. And we will conclude our schema chat with the Death of X storyline. And that last chapter, I'm less sure of. So if you have opinions of where we should conclude our conversation around Scott and Emma, please let us know, cbccpodcast at gmail.com or hit our socials at cbccpodcast. Hey, if you are listening to this on Friday, January 26th, and you are in the general DMV area, you are going to want to get your butt to Third Eye Comics for their grand opening of Third Eye Music and Video. Um, you heard the ad at the beginning, but we're actually going to be there just like hanging out. And we'd love to see you and give you high fives and hugs or whatever you're open to. We also have stickers and buttons. Stickers and buttons. Stickers and buttons. Gifts, Come and get if that's em. your love language. We were trading emails back and forth with Steve just yesterday, and man, they have really expanded the other two stores, yes. the games and the comic side. The manga section now is massive, and it was already pretty darn big. Uh, so yeah, yeah, come spend some money, hang out with CBCC at Third Eye Comics on Chinquapin Road in Annapolis, Maryland. Okay, Brad, I don't know if it's just me, 
or if it's the Phoenix Force, but I am feeling pretty hopeful about our future. Where can our <laughs> listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I would not wish the Phoenix Force on my worst enemy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. If you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, show poster, and fifth anniversary poster, send them to Karen Chap. At Karen underscore X-Men fan, Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. We're everywhere. Did I say Audible? Audible too. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. And we actually posted the McFarland video in our Patreon feed just today. We did. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on all the socials at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yes, please. We're fluent and receptive in all five love languages it really warms our hearts and helps the pod so until next time friends keep your love tank full and your psychic rapport open couples counseling podcast i'm lisa gullickson and i'm brad gullickson and each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm in this episode we really know how to murder a romantic mood Murder a romantic mood. Murder a romantic mood. In this episode, we really know how to murder a romantic mood. Ah, that it may, it may very well be our mutant power. Yeah, you know how great it makes me feel when I'm trying to do something and then you just do it better on the first try? Not, That's like woo, my favorite. I just it's stum- my f***ing favorite. I just stumbled you are all a over monster. it. <laughs> That's a stinger. Do you know what we haven't done since our last recording vacuumed? Yeah, I know. Don't it, talk about it. The, the Dyson is right Still in the me. box. You are now in session. <laughs> <laughs>